Father, tonight in the book of Acts, I am drawn into the text once more, amazed at what Paul and, and other men with him were able to accomplish in such a short time. And then, of course, Father, we see as we study that it is not his work and not the work of those men, but rather it's your work through them, which explains the miracle of the progress he made. And in that, Father, I gain encouragement. I pray, Father, we would have a similar reaction as we study tonight to be encouraged by the, the courage and the fortitude of these men, the determination that each had, Paul particularly. Let them be an example to us, Father. Let us not think that they had something different and that they were unique, but rather, Father, look at them as just vessels for whom you had appointed a mission and you carried it out through them. And we have the same opportunity, Father. Let us be encouraged and, and um, directed to be the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are back here after a couple of weeks. We're back in the book of Acts looking at chapters 21 and on in this journal style that I described last time where Luke now is accompanying Paul so the, the text starts to sound more like a travel journal as Luke records event after event after event in the course of Paul's movements and his experiences. Tonight in chapter 21, we begin the final section of the book of Acts, Paul in captivity. In fact, this entire time from chapter 21 through 28, he will be in captivity. First, he's a captive in Jerusalem. That begins tonight. That carries on for a few chapters. Then he's moved to Caesarea, where he continues to be a captive. And then finally from Caesarea to Rome, where he, the story ends. But the whole time, he's a prisoner. So this last section of the book is about Paul as a prisoner for Christ. Let's begin there. Chapter 21, we'll read verses 1 through 6. When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home again. So tonight we begin where Luke left off, really, uh, in his story. That makes sense, of course, because we ended at chapter 20 last time. With the end of chapter 20, Paul was in Miletus. He was traveling with these men, representing various Gentile churches, bringing gifts for Jerusalem. And he had left in Miletus after having given the elders of Ephesus an exhortation against false teachers and the like. Then after delivering that message, he gets on a ship again in Miletus and he continues toward Jerusalem because he's felt this compelling need to be in Jerusalem now for some time. First it was Passover, now it's become for Pentecost, but still Paul knows that's where he needs to be. But as he approaches Jerusalem tonight, he's going to receive numerous warning signs as he goes along the way that something terrible awaits him in that city. And yet, we're going to watch Paul just continue to go to that city and, and to be determined in doing so. Luke here records as he leaves Miletus how the ship progresses along the Pamphylian coast. And first to coast, then to Rhodes, then on to Patera. If, if you have the map I handed out a few weeks back that chronicles his third missionary journey. This is another good opportunity to pull that out and take a look at it uh, because it'll make 
some, help you make better sense of what you're reading or what we're seeing in the text tonight. As he moves from coast to Rhodes, then to Patara, in Patara they switch ships in the dock there in the, in the port, looking for one that's headed to Phoenicia. But the reason they did this was fairly simple. The ships that they would use as they traversed the coastline were much smaller and had a lower draft and were the taxi of the day. Now that he's heading out over open sea across into uh, to, to Judea, that's going to require a much bigger ship, a ship that can handle the open sea and all that comes with it. So he's moving to that style ship in, in uh, uh, Patera. After they head out from Patera, they go towards Syria and uh, specifically the ancient city-state of Tyre. And Paul, when he reaches Tyre, Luke says they stay there a week. And this is not out of choice for Paul. Remember, he's in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem. It's because of this offloading of the cargo that you see Luke mentioning here. That would have been the natural thing to expect. These ships were carrying cargo, and it took time and man- with manual labor to empty out the, co- the cargo hold and load new cargo. So there's a, a delay involved there. Plus, you've got sailors. Sailors love ports, and uh, once you get to a port, they stay off ship for a while. Typically, they want the rest, so there's going to be a delay before the ship moves on. So he's got to fill the time. While he's in this city, it says he goes looking for the disciples, and Paul knew there was a church here. He knew it had been uh, started uh, a few decades earlier at the hands of disciples who were those spread from Jerusalem when the persecution first broke out in Jerusalem. You remember Philip, of course, who went down to Samaria. We're going to see him again here a little, a little later. But men like Philip who scattered, some of them ended up along the Phoenician coast and began to minister and started churches. But Paul's never visited this place before, so he's never seen any of these believers. He doesn't know where they are. He doesn't even know who they are, probably. And since they're Gentiles and not Jews, it serves no purpose to go to the synagogue looking for these people. And with only a few days in port, it's, it's clear that Paul has decided he doesn't have time to do the normal routine of going to the synagogue, preaching to the Jew first, and then afterward preaching to Gentiles because he's not here to found a new church or to establish anything. He's passing through. So the only real ministry opportunity he has is to greet those who already know the Lord, that being the Gentiles. So he looks for them. Somehow they've obviously found them. They probably used a variety of means to to scout and, and figure out where these people were. Once he finds them, he stays with them for this whole week. And then we start to see the first of these warnings. While he's with them, they tell him, according to Luke, through the Spirit, that he should not set foot in Jerusalem. Now, this statement is potentially confusing. And in fact, it has given rise to some debate among those who've read it because it suggests or it seems to suggest that Paul would be disobeying the Spirit were he to continue on to Jerusalem. It seems to suggest the Spirit is directing him not to go to Jerusalem. But remember, we have to understand what's being said here in light of all that we read in Scripture apart from this, all that Scripture offers apart from this, and in light of how the story ends, meaning how Paul does get to Jerusalem and what comes from it. So we can't look at this in isolation. We have to see how the whole story plays out and understand the the text as a whole. And then secondly, we have to understand the language of this verse specifically. And both are going to be helpful to giving us the right interpretation. For example, in the text itself, the warning, uh, we're told that this warning came to Paul from these people through the Spirit. And that helps us understand what's really going on here. Luke does not use the more common phrase, by the Spirit. He uses a somewhat 
unorthodox or, or unusual phrase, through the Spirit. If he had said they gave him this warning by the Spirit, that would have indicated that the words spoken by these people were given to them by the Spirit, that they were according to the Spirit's direction. And if that were so, then we would have to conclude that Paul was being told by God not to go to Jerusalem. But Luke doesn't say that. Luke says something different. Luke says that through the Spirit they received this instruction. In other words, Luke says through, not by, so that we would understand that the brothers in Syria were speaking based on a revelation they received, but yet their conclusion, which they drew from that revelation, was their own. So they have received something through the Spirit, meaning it was a revelation, a knowledge that God gave them by the Spirit. But now they have taken that knowledge and have constructed their own recommendation based on what they have been given by the Spirit. And through that manner, they are now delivering their own recommendation to Paul. The word through places distance between the Spirit and the actual direction that these people offered to Paul. Compared to the word by, which would imply it was directly the Spirit's revelation. In truth, the Spirit never gives Paul any direction to avoid or not go to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, by what we see happening in the story, and this is the second piece of information we need to, to gain a proper interpretation, by what we will eventually see as we study the rest of Acts and learn what comes of it through, through Paul's ministry, also by looking at what Paul himself says about all of these experiences in his letters, we come to a conclusion in, in total that this was God's will, that he would be ministering in this way through his imprisonment and that it was part of God's plan that Paul would suffer for the gospel's sake in this way. And yet the spirit is giving Paul this this insight, this revelation. Now, we'll come back to, to answering a question of why later. Paul is determined to leave at this point. He's heard their their concerns, their their request that he not go because they know something bad is going to happen to him there. But nevertheless, he's determined to leave and he makes that clear to them. And so they are resigned to letting him go. They follow him to the ship and pray with him before he leaves. We're going to see this pattern again before the night's over. Paul receives a warning through the spirit as given to well-meaning brothers and sisters in the Lord. But those brothers and sisters in the Lord take, take that warning and go the wrong direction with it and interpret it to be a warning that he should not go. Where Paul, on the other hand, will see the revelation of the Spirit as intending to prepare him for what he, may, what he will face. He will see it in the proper way, while these other Christians, well-meaning as they may be, see it in the wrong way, and use it to try to dissuade him. Acts 21.7, let's see how the, this warning comes up again. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be pers uh, persuaded, we fell silent 
remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Do you notice a pronoun change? Luke's now in on this, isn't he? The we's indicate Luke has joined the chorus of those calling on Paul not to go any further. Now, Paul has nearly reached Jerusalem at this point. On your map, you'll notice how close Caesarea is. After a brief stop in Ptolemy and a a visit with the church in that town, Paul arrives here at Caesarea. Uh, It sounds as if, just looking at the text, that he may have made the trip for this last part uh, of, of his journey by land. These places are only about 30 miles apart, which is a good day's walk in those days. So um, in any day, really, if you walk, it's, it's about a one day's walk. And he may have just given up on waiting for ships and decided he can make the rest of the trip by land. Caesarea is a very famous town. You know, it comes up, obviously, in Scripture from time to time in the New Testament. Uh, this is a modern city in its day, very modern. It was built, really rebuilt by Herod the Great. Uh, so it's uh, ultra modern, brand new city. Uh, It served as the Roman capital of Judea from about the time of 4 A.D. onward. So it's an an important modern city. Paul chooses to bring his entourage uh, to the home of Philip the Evangelist. Remember, Paul's traveling with all these other men with their gifts for the church in Jerusalem. You have to always imagine Paul here as part of a gaggle of people moving through this this journey. And he stays with Philip. Now, we remember Philip, obviously, from chapter 8. The guy who, with Simon the magician and going down to the Samaritans and so on. He was one of the seven. You notice how he's identified here as one of the seven. It's unclear whether Luke is using that term to remind the reader of chapter 8 and chapter 7 or if they themselves were known as the seven in their own day. That's a question we're not clear on, but, but it's one that Luke is using here at the very least. Uh, by the way, that event with, uh, with Philip back in chapter 8, By this point now, that's 20 years history. So it's been 20 years since that moment occurred in the the life of uh, the book of Acts. So he has obviously moved up from Samaria, settled in Caesarea. He's got four daughters now. So he's living in in Caesarea. This is his home and he's settled down. This is the first time Luke has met Philip, from what we can tell. And if so, it would be logical to assume that the stories we know of from Philip's experience in Samaria were transferred from Philip to Luke during this time as Luke spent a few days or longer with with uh, Philip. He probably learned some of what he later wrote in the book of Acts. These four daughters, they're, they're called virgins and they have the gift of prophecy. Now, the mention of virginity here would have been unnecessary, really, if it simply meant these are young ladies who had not had relations with men and have not married yet. In this day and age, pretty much every young lady was a virgin until she married. I mean, that would have been the norm. So to simply identify them in that way adds little to the story unless it was a statement to indicate they were committed to a life of singleness in a permanent sense. So that maybe because of their gift of prophecy and and the way God was using them in ministry, they had all four decided they were going to remain single And in that sense, they became known as the virgins that were prophetesses. That may be more of what Luke is indicating here. They live with their father, naturally, because they're not married. And the fact that they're mentioned at all is kind of an interesting aside, because you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be mentioned. They don't have any role in the story beyond just this one mention. And although it's an interesting detail, it begs the question, why did Luke choose to include it? One answer is that the Spirit asked Luke to include it as evidence for us now and for all generations that spiritual gifts of all kinds are available to both men and women. Speaking gifts included, of course. Both men and women 
have speaking and teaching gifts alongside all other gifts. The only exception, as far as I can tell, is the gift of apostleship. There are no women apostles. But all the, other than that, every gift that a man can have, a woman can have. Scripture only places limits on how that gift is exercised within the context of the body. You can have a teaching gift as a woman, of course, but you won't be a pastor in the traditional sense of a male leader. Or if you are in that pastoral role, it will still be underneath the headship and the leadership of a man who has authority in that same role. So there are these limits placed on how the gifts are exercised in terms of role, but the sheer availability of the gift is not limited. Uh, by the way, this works both ways. Uh, for example, Paul, we, we may remember from 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 14 that a woman is not to exercise a gift of prophecy or teaching if doing so would challenge male headship in the church. So exercise it as much as you can until you reach a point where it would appear to be a challenge to male headship or authority, and at that point, back down. Because now the higher goal of authority and headship is at risk for the lesser goal of gifts are exercised, and so we, 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 we monitor ourselves in that respect. But the other side can be said, uh, can, can be a good example too. Men cannot exercise speaking in tongues when an interpreter is not present because it violates good order and, and edification of the body. It starts to run counter to the purpose of gifting. So it's not a uniquely woman issue to say that our gifts are limited by role and by context. It's all governed by love. So love is the highest order, the highest goal. In using my gift, I must always be putting it to work in such a manner that I am serving the greater good of love in the body of Christ and not doing it for my own sake, my own glory, or anything of the sort. So God can gift women with prophecy, men with prophecy, women with teaching, men with teaching, and we apply our gifts to the, to the glory of God. We, but we always do it in love and, and respecting leadership around us. Luke says that while Paul was staying in Caesarea, another prophet shows up, a man named Agabus, coming from Judea. We saw him earlier in the book, actually, you may not remember, but in chapter 11, Agabus foretold the famine in Antioch. He was briefly mentioned back in chapter 11. In similar ways to chapter 11, he makes the trip. In chapter 11, it was to Antioch. Here it's to Caesarea with the word that God had given him. And he visits Paul, and then he uses this very elaborate display of taking the rope off Paul's robe. When he says belt, it's not leather, it's, it's a rope, corded rope. He takes that off Paul, ties himself, Agabus ties his own arms and feet up as a demonstration to make the point, symbolic demonstration, and then communicates of the danger that's coming. All of this, of course, to say you're going to be a prisoner when you get to Jerusalem. This is not without precedent either. If you know the Old Testament fairly well, you've studied the prophets, you remember scenes like this. Remember Isaiah? He had the unenviable request from God to parade around naked for three years for a demonstration. Ezekiel had to dig a hole in his wall and crawl out. It's a common thing for God to give the prophets these little demonstrations to reinforce the point. So he visits, he gives the warning. What's interesting about this warning is it not only comes true, but it lasts for five years. Paul is bound for five years. He is in chains or in some capacity bound one way or another for five years from the point he gets taken into Jerusalem. Notice in this example, the prophet speaks exactly what the spirit says. Look at the text. I want to make this point because it contrasts with what we saw earlier in verse 11. Agabus says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Not through, not around. This is direct revelation, and he's quoting, if you will, the Holy Spirit. 
It's a warning again, but notice the Holy Spirit does not issue a prohibition. So here we have some confirmation, I guess, by circumstance, by circumstantial evidence, that if the Holy Spirit had wanted Paul not to go to Jerusalem, here's his chance. He had an audience. He had direct revelation being given to a prophet who was delivered to Paul to give the message. And what did he say to Paul? Nothing about don't go, only about what to expect when you go. In fact, if you think about it, the prophecy would make no sense if Paul wasn't to go to Jerusalem. It is a prophecy of what will happen in Jerusalem. And therefore, it can only be fulfilled if he goes to Jerusalem. And God's word will be fulfilled. So there's little to suggest that Paul was disobeying. And that's really the point in all this. Some have come to conclude Paul was in disobedience as he went into Jerusalem on the premise that all of these warnings, all of these times that people have said don't go were spirit led advice, godly advice. And as such, Paul was in disobedience to the spirit. But I don't see that at all. And I don't think there's any reason to suggest that it's quite the opposite. There was spirit divine revelation about what would happen. But there was a personal non-spirit led reaction from the part of on the part of all these people that knew Paul, a natural one, a human one, but not the right one. And it was to try to dissuade Paul from going when he knew otherwise. Here you see a prophet speaking exactly what the spirit says, a warning, not a prohibition. And then I want you to notice the effect that the Spirit's comment, his direction, look at the different effect it had on the crowd on the one hand and on Paul on the other hand. First, the crowd. The crowd takes the warning and interprets it like the earlier group, which I just mentioned. They see the reality of this coming misery and they interpret that as reason not to venture into Jerusalem. And we can assume. I mean, we can assume why they would have had this point of view, right? Many of us may have come to exactly the same conclusion. You just have to put two and two together. They instinctively believe that preservation of life is the highest value. And as such, everything else is subservient to that highest value. Obviously, in my own words, they're saying to Paul, obviously, Paul, if you have good evidence to know you're going to be hurt and potentially killed, by doing something, it's self-evident you don't do it. Because taking care of yourself, protecting yourself from death, well, that's certainly the highest goal, and that's what we must pursue. If Paul knew that he was going to be endangered in Jerusalem, the only logical thing for him to do, in their minds, was to not go. Now, that view is natural. I mean, it comes out of a natural instinct. It is common, certainly today even, it's common. It's especially common and especially true among unbelievers. That is the way the world works. The enemy, through fear of death, has made them slaves all their lives, Hebrews tells us. So there's a, a natural, instinctive desire to, to avoid death. It may seem sensible to conclude that protection of our life is the highest goal we can seek after. And for an unbeliever, in some sense, that's true. But for a believer, it's not. The Bible gives Christians an even higher goal than protecting our physical life. We're told that obedience to God is the highest goal of a sanctified life. And it's even more important than preserving our own physical life in keeping with the example that our Lord himself set by putting himself on a cross for a higher goal, obedience to the Father. When we place our physical lives over the goal of obeying God, you're going to stand to lose something much greater than you would hope to gain by preserving your physical life. Jesus said it best. You probably know the quote. Mark captures it this way in Mark 8:35. Jesus said, 
Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. There's a couple of different ways you can interpret that, but in the context of tonight's lesson, here's how I would apply it. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That is simply an obvious statement of fact. You can't live forever. So for the one who avoids a difficult situation, because, and you know, a modern example might be, for example, going into a difficult area of the world on missions work because of a fear of violence or something you know, that might happen while you're there. That strategy only works for so long. You know, even if you die in your sleep, a natural death at age 100, you still died. I mean, there is no and there's an inevitability to that outcome so that the one who is seeking to save his life is win is, is fighting a losing battle and cannot hope to gain what they seek. Not ultimately, not inevitably. And therefore, they have something they can spend, so to speak. They have a life they can spend. They can let it just drain out on its own and die in a way that gives God nothing or they can use it to his glory, you're dying either way, the rapture notwithstanding. So for the one who makes their life goal saving their physical life, preserving it at all costs, in other words, they don't win what they're trying to win. And, Jesus says, they lose something greater. When he says whoever loses his life, I think the implication is whoever makes that his goal, whoever seeks to give his life to God, as an outpouring, as Paul says in Second Timothy, I'm being poured out as a drink offering in the sense of a, a sacrificial approach to living life in the Romans 12:1 style. That person, he says, will have gained what he was wanting, which is eternal life, but in the sense now more of rewards and something to show for that giving of life, that pouring out in an eternal realm. It's the analogy to don't store your treasure up here, store it in heaven. But your body is the deposit. And uh, to that way of thinking, Paul now reacts with that with that mindset. Paul now sharing the mind of Christ in this regard with that mindset. Paul reacts now in a different way to the news the, the people react in one way, the way that Jesus says we shouldn't react. Paul reacts in a different way. First, he gently admonishes them. I say gently because he could have done it a number of other ways, but he gently admonishes them. He tells them. They're breaking his heart. You're breaking my heart. That phrase is great. In the Greek, that phrase carries the meaning of you're weakening my will or you're lessening my resolve. That's what its real sense is. Paul is correcting the crowd here by pointing out that they are working against Paul's best interests, making it harder for him to obey the Lord when they put these these emotional appeals in his lap the way they're doing here. In a way, you could say... That what Paul is saying here is similar to what Jesus told Peter when they were in a nearby place, Caesarea Philippi. Remember when Peter tells Jesus, no one's going to, you're not going to die. May it never be. Jesus turns to Peter in Matthew 16, 23 and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. But then he says, you are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's the core issue here. The people don't want Paul to go to Jerusalem because of man's interests, not God's. And it's a natural thing, but it's still wrong. When we want something other than what God wants, by definition, that's sin. When Paul asks the brethren here, what are you doing? He's really saying, do you know what you're doing to me or what you're suggesting for me? And Paul demonstrates his resolve. I'm going. I'm going because God's called me to go. 
And that resolve, his life demonstration, his, his behavior becomes teaching for the sake of the crowd. Because they say, it says in verse 14, they see his resolve. So it's not about what he says. It's about what they notice in him. And they declare the Lord's will be done. What a powerful example of how behavior is, is the teaching. What's the old phrase? Preach the gospel everywhere you go and if necessary, use words. It's this sense here where the life of Paul in the moment becomes the evidence of the Spirit's work and that becomes the teaching to the crowd. They say, oh, you know what? Maybe we missed the point here. Lord's will be done, not ours. God is clearly calling Paul into Jerusalem and into chains for the sake of the gospel. And now the brethren understand that call. And so they turn from, a, I guess, a selfish desire to preserve his life to a better desire to obey God. Remember, the book of Acts told us early on when Jesus pulled Paul out of his disobedience as Saul and turned him into Paul. Back then, Jesus had confided in Paul concerning the many things he would suffer for the name of Jesus. Jesus saying, I have shown him all the things he will suffer for my namesake. So Paul was understanding from the very beginning that, that what he had been given would arrive ultimately at persecution, ultimately at some kind of, of suffering for Christ's sake. And now many of those things are about to take place. And Paul is ready to be obedient to that call. He's ready for it. I find it interesting, though, that the Spirit is telling him, even as he approaches the moment, that it's coming and that it's coming. So what can we learn from the fact that God is willing to reveal Paul's suffering to him in advance like this as he moves toward the city? It's obvious the more God reveals, the harder it is for Paul to move, in a sense. The fact that God was revealing to him what was going to happen, as unpleasant as it was, it's interesting that God was placing that before Paul, even as Paul has to move toward that eventual outcome. He always does it in a public forum. These aren't revelations coming to Paul in a dream. It's not that Paul needs to know these things. He already knows these things. He's been given this stuff for a long time. He heard from the very beginning, you're going to have to suffer for my namesake. There's nothing additive for Paul's sake in these revelations, necessarily. They're coming, if you notice, not to Paul. They're coming to the brethren and then to Paul or a prophet in front of brethren and then to Paul. It, it seems tailor-made to inform others, not Paul, that there's going to be this suffering. And if, that, if God wants the church to witness Paul's obedience in the face of certain persecution and death, this is the way to do it. To bring the knowledge to a corporate setting and then let Paul's response be the teaching moment to the crowd. Remember, not long after Paul dies, the church as a whole enters a period of persecution that lasts several hundred years at the hands of Rome. Kind of comes and goes over that time, but it's a sustained period of persecution. And many Christians, not just Paul, of course, but many Christians are soon to be called upon to face death for their faith. And they must face that death, that prospect of death, without retreating from their confession. That is going to be the call that God gives them. And in particular, you can see it in the book of Revelation as Jesus writes the seven letters. You will face tribulation for a short time, be faithful unto death, and you'll receive the crown of life. So there is a, a very clear call to Christians in the first century to be ready for this kind of persecution. And leading into this period, entering into this period, the Lord has decided to parade Paul through this period of captivity for five long years. You know, he's in captivity for a long time, which seems almost pointless if the whole end of it was to kill him anyway. But there's a there's a reason for it, how you deal with suffering, how you deal with persecution for Christ's sake, and then ultimately into a martyrdom in a very public way. 
And Paul is set up, by, for example, in all of this so that the church can see firsthand how you face suffering for the sake of Christ. It's God using Paul as a teaching implement, as example, for the rest of the church. I would encourage you to remember this lesson of Paul and how his life was orchestrated in this way, as a way of teaching others about suffering and so on. Remember that when we face our own trials of whatever kind. And ask yourself this, does God have the right to use our life in any way he wishes for his own glory and for his eternal purposes, even if the way that best suits him is that we would be put through trials and sufferings, even unto death, because through our experience in that time, we ministered to other people best. You have to be willing to come back to a lesson like this and say, am I any different than Paul? Do I have rights to anything more than God gave Paul? And of course, even if you think you do, Take it up a notch. Do you have rights to more regard than Christ himself received from the Father in what God was willing to do to his own son? Like Paul, God could decide that the best use of our lives from all that he has to do with it, the best option he has is to bring us through a trial or tragedy as an opportunity to demonstrate his power and grace in our life. Now, having said that, wouldn't it be a shame if he takes us into that kind of a circumstance and we don't use it for his glory, we don't live up to the standard Paul sets? That, to me, is the greatest, the, the greatest shame, is when we've been placed into a difficult situation for God's glory, but then we don't turn it to God's glory because, well, because we get downtrodden in it and we, we become uh, who we naturally are instead of who God can be in us. I'm thinking to myself, if I'm going through a really bad trial, I might as well get the most eternal value out of it. So be prepared to give God glory in that way. Acts 21:15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasin of, Cy- of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Uh, Let me explain what's happening here as he moves into Jerusalem. The brethren in Caesarea send Paul to Jerusalem with this trusted brother, Manasseh, who lives in the city, probably lives in Jerusalem. The plan here is to have Paul and his entourage board with this man when he finally gets to Jerusalem. This is a really smart plan because Manasseh, we know from, from what's being said here that he's a brother who's been around since the early days of the church and so on. That phrase seems to suggest literally the beginnings of the church, which might imply he was at Pentecost. As such, he was probably Hellenistic. He was probably someone from outside the city who was traveling in for the Pentecost and was caught up in the moment, but lived up in Caesarea. But he may have maintained a home or had relatives of some sort down in in Jerusalem. And as such, it became a great opportunity for this traveling party because he would be able to board Jews and Gentiles. Remember, there's, there's both in this crowd, this traveling entourage, and do so without the same concerns that most very orthodox Jews in the city would have had. It would have been very hard to find any Jew willing to bring Gentiles into their home. But this guy, being Hellenistic, a little more liberal, and obviously a Christian, so he didn't didn't have a problem at all. But as such, being an outsider, he could do this in the city without causing an uproar among the other Jews in the city. Paul enters. He is received by the church in the city warmly. 
He visits James. He visits the other elders. He does his rounds. And he gives a full report on how the church is spreading across the world among the Gentiles. That must have been very encouraging for the church in Jerusalem to see that spreading. But almost immediately, you notice in verse 20, the, dis- the, the discussion turns here to more serious matters concerning Paul's safety. The leaders remind Paul that in Jerusalem there are thousands of believing Jews. That's Christians now, believing Jews. The word here, by the way, for thousands is myriads in Greek, and that literally means 10,000. And the fact that it's plural here would suggest 20,000 or more believers, Jewish believers, in the city of Jerusalem. That's pretty remarkable. It tells you just how big a congregation now lived in this city. It's a great testimony of the growth of the church. Uh, But it's also a risk because James tells Paul here that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were zealous for keeping the law. Now, since we know believers are not required to keep the law in this way, we must assume that these believers were doing so either simply as a matter of personal preference, but given that they're said to be zealous, it would suggest that they are immature. They're unaware of their liberty in Christ and are still of the belief that keeping the law was a requirement. And their zealousness would have meant they were prone to enforcing this view on others. We would call this legalism today. What they're worried about here is that these zealous Jews will be focused on maintaining appearances for the sake of relations with the rest of the city and for for themselves. And they are going to be concerned about anyone who would disrupt this. They have heard, James says, they have heard false rumors fed to them that Paul was teaching against Jewish laws and customs. That's not true. But, of course, it would have been easy to manufacture that kind of false accusation and it would, it would stick in the ears of people who really didn't know the truth and had only heard bits and pieces of Paul's teaching. It's clear enough these are dishonest people trying to stir up trouble for Paul. And James and the other elders know that this is happening in the city. And they tell Paul that many of the believing Jews are going to accept these rumors as true and that puts them at risk of being an adversary for Paul. Now, realize they're believers, but that doesn't mean they're not fleshly sinful people prone to doing dumb things and stirred up enough with enough false teaching they could be dangerous to Paul as as hard as that is to accept so the men decide upon a plan of action that will help protect Paul verse 22 what then is to be done they will certainly hear that you have come therefore do this that we tell you we have four men who are under a vow take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Well, the leaders here know eventually everybody's going to hear Paul's in town. And so they come up with this plan to help cover Paul from the accusations. There's four men apparently in the church who were coming to the end of a period of a vow. Remember, we talked about vows a while back and these men had made a vow of some kind. At the end of the vow, remember, they go to the temple, they purify themselves, they cut their hair and they burn it in the temple. This is all part of how you complete the vow. That's about to happen for these men. They suggest Paul join them. Paul become a fifth person going through the process. It's a very public ritual. 
It's, it's one that carried a lot of significance. And since we know Paul to be a man who took vows periodically, we've seen him do that already, this is certainly not contrary to Paul's own convictions. Remember, liberty means we don't have to keep the law. It doesn't mean we can't. So you may keep the law if you choose, but it's just not required, and you wouldn't teach that it is. Paul, being a Jew and one who has practiced the law his whole life, he still preferred to keep it for the most part. But as he said himself in his own teaching to, to the church in Corinth, I've become all things to all men so that I might win a few. He's both a Jew at times and a Gentile at times, as he needs to be. So he moved between the two worlds. Here, clearly, the need is to be a Jew. And so he's willing to adopt that lifestyle as required. And we'll look at the details of what he does here now as we go through the text. What Paul's going to do is, is go to the temple with these men, purify themselves, which includes shaving the head. That process was somewhat costly. I mean, you had the payments to the temple priests. You had a, a sacrifice, several sacrifices, actually, that took place as a part of this purification process. You had to buy the animals. So these men apparently don't have a lot of money. And James is looking at killing two birds with one stone. He knows Paul's got money. These men came with gifts for the church. So he's saying, why don't you pay for yourself, pay for them. That'll show that you're supporting what they're doing. You, you go and participate with them. In this way, Paul is showing his public support for the custom. Furthermore, the Gentiles were told, do what we've already told all the Gentiles to do. Abstain from these four things and you'll be fine. So the Gentiles are not asked to do anything different. Paul agrees. He accompanies the men to the temple. He himself was also purified. He had his head shaved. And then it says he gave notice that the time of the completion of the days of purification were coming to an end. What that refers to is the process in which this vow completion took place. It was seven days long. You'd go to the temple. You would uh, cut your hair and burn it and then announce to the uh, priest that you were, at, you were completing a vow and that you needed to make sacrifices. And the priest now had to go ritually prepare all these sacrifices and that would take place over a period of days. So while you waited for them to be ready to do the sacrifices, you stayed in the temple. So you would be there for seven days. So this, this conclusion process took a period of time. That's why it says here Paul had to go in and give notice. He had to let the priest know, I'm here to complete a vow, get all the sacrifices ready for me, here's the money for the sacrifices. And the priest went off and did their job. And so it took a while for each of these things to happen. And these, did, these were done in turn. Now, after seven days, this process is done and they've gone through the whole ritual of completing their vow. The process would seem to have had its intended effect because we never read anywhere in the book of Acts of believing Jews in Jerusalem giving Paul any grief. Among those that they were concerned about, the believing Jews, this appears to be a successful strategy. Ironically, today, many believers look at what we just described as happening and criticize Paul here again because he participates in sacrifice. Is this the right thing for Paul to do? Is this something we're allowed to do? And actually, it's cleared up very easily. Yes, he's sacrificing, but he is not sacrificing as an atoning act. This is not an act of atonement. Paul is not sacrificing for his sin. The sacrifice that is associated with completing a vow is a sacrifice of thanks. It's a thanksgiving act in light of the vow having been kept. Remember, you keep, you keep a vow either in thanks for something that has happened or in thanks for something you want to have happen. But in either case, the completing of the vow results in a sacrifice of thanks. We are making sacrifices of thanks all the time. We just don't do it by killing an animal, usually. But we would do it in other conventional ways. But this is not an act of, in which Paul is suggesting that a sacrifice for sin is still required for his sake. 
verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowds and lay hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. (gasps) For they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowds, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. This seems pretty straightforward. It's self-evident what's going on. We don't need to say a lot about it. The lying distortions that were given, particularly the one that says a Greek went into the temple, that's... That's the holy hand grenade. You say a Greek has walked into the temple. Literally, there's a sign on the temple that separated the court of women from the court of Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile and you came up to the entrance to the court of women, the outer court, as it was called, there was a sign that said only Jews, no Gentiles allowed. And the Gentile that passes is alone responsible for the death that will follow or something like that. And it was the only time that Jews could kill, legally kill anyone, including Roman citizens under Roman law. The Roman law had permitted Jews to take the life of anyone who was not Jew who walked into that one place. They'd carved out that permission for Jews, and they could do it even for a Roman citizen. So they're accusing Paul of having broken that rule. Well, that, that started the melee. At the time this begins, Paul is at the, in the inner court, place for Jewish men only. They drag him out from there, it says, to the outer court, the place for all Jews, women and men, and they close the doors. And that's because it was against Jewish law to, to spill the blood of men inside the inner place, the inner court. And so they shut the doors so that when they kill him, he'll be on the outside. It's important to be very respectful of all the laws as you go to murder somebody. Then the Roman cohort hears, he comes, he pulls Paul out of all the melee, tries to figure out what's going on, can't get a straight answer with all the crowd making noise, pull him into the barracks so they can interrogate him in the barracks. And then, once they're in the barracks, verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? You are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? That's an accusation. That's not a question. But Paul said, Now, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. So Paul speaks up at this point, asks for a chance to address the crowd. Now, just to clarify what was said there, he speaks in Greek, which surprised the commander. He thought the guy would only know Hebrew or Hebrew and Aramaic. And he speaks probably in such clear, high society Greek that the commander is put off guard by it and then starts to wonder if maybe this is the cause for the uh, hubbub in the court. Maybe this is this Egyptian who escaped custody at some point in the past as he tried to lead a revolution in the city. So he's accusing Paul. Are you this Egyptian that we've been looking for? Paul answers the question saying no. He announces himself as a Jew of Tarsus a citizen of no insignificant city. And then he asked for permission to speak to the people. And the speech that Paul gives 
serves the bulk of chapter 22, which is what we'll do next week. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you have uh, held us together for so long, caring for us through your word and by the love of each other in the faith. Thank you, Father, for that blessing. We have a special group, Father, and we praise you that you gave us that blessing. And we thank you, Father, that you continue to provide for us a place to meet. And uh, we uh, ask, Father, that all the details for our change would go as planned and that you would perhaps use this opportunity not only to continue the teaching for those who are here tonight, but perhaps, Father, let it be a chance for us to meet new people and bring others into the study. Uh, But we do thank you, Father, for that provision. And uh, we ask that uh, all that we've learned tonight, Father, might, might direct us and inform us, Father, on how we can serve you better and how we can look at our circumstances knowing that they are an opportunity to glorify you and uh, show us how to do that best. Bring us back next week, Father. Let us continue. We ask that every week because we do endeavor to finish the study and have the counsel that you've given us in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.